Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. On this snowy Tuesday, February 13th, a day after the Rangers took care of the Calgary Flames last night at the world's most famous arena, workmanlike fashion, a 2-0 shutout, empty net goal by Jimmy Vesey, as you know, Dan, late. Igor Sesterkin back in form. The Knicks get robbed in Houston. We'll talk about that later. Uh, But this is Market Call, 1 o'clock on the East Coast. How are you, Dan? I'm doing okay here, guy. It is a little snowy. It's not like the most exciting bit of snow. If you saw all the flurries as I did for my 12th floor apartment, you'd say, okay, maybe this thing is going to be packing it in a little bit, guy, but it's not. It's just a bit slushy out there. So it is what it is. You know, I just got done recording OK Computer with Deirdre Bosa. She is the fine host of CNBC's Tech Check. I don't know what we're doing today. What are we doing today, guy? What's the focus here? I see a sea of red yeah. on my back set screen, my main board here. I'm looking at it, and I have like hundreds of stocks on my main board, and I probably see 10 that are green on the day. So what's going on? Give me the rundown. Well, the, what's going on is, as you know, and I'm sure our viewers and listeners know, that CPI print came in um, on the warm side of things. Some would call it hot. I... Uh, would be one of those people. And the whole narrative of Fed being able to cut rates in March, excuse me, I think that's sort of gone by the wayside. I think June, which is the next meeting, I believe, um, that now is down to, I want to say, a 40 or maybe a 55, 60% chance they have it there, if you want to throw it up. But what's really interesting is there's actually now a market there's a 7% chance, at least last I looked, for a Fed rate hike, Whoa. which I think is pretty. And now, again, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen. I just want to be crystal clear. But you know, given what we saw today, that's out there now. And, and I think yesterday we talked about vol being surprisingly bid on a pretty benign day. We said, yeah. don't make a big deal of it, but it's something to keep an eye on. You know, we've been talking about yields for a while, and we'll go right to it. I mean, 10-year yields, which were... 3.8% a couple weeks ago, touched, I think, 430, if not just shade below 430 today around 429 and change. So that's interesting as well. So there's just so many things to be concerned about. I've said for a while, I know, you, you know you've backed me up on this. I don't think the market fully comprehends how persistent and pesky inflation has been and will continue to be. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, if you want to flash it up there, so we're going to focus on that CPI print. Maybe we'll get, uh, you know, kind of in some of the nitty gritty um, of that. I think this rate move is obviously really important. And just to your point, guy, the expectation all of a sudden that there's even a, you know, like a high single digit percentage chance of a hike would say that, you know, market participants are now saying, okay, what would happen if we start to see inflation kind of tick up a little mm-hmm. bit? Right. And so um, to me, I think that um, is kind of 
interesting if you just think back to just two months ago, right? When the S&P was raging, making new highs um, every day. I think last week with Friday's close, it was the 15th straight week of uh, gains week over week, which is like the longest period ever. And a lot of that was predicated on the excitement by lots of market participants that the Fed was going to be able to lower interest rates, right? And so, you know, uh, you know. also, listen, to be very fair, I think the excitement that the economy, uh, you know, performed much better than many people expected in 2023 heading into that year, right? And so, I don't know, man, it just feels like that a lot of people are off sides. And to me, the one thing that really hasn't kind of reacted to this realization that rates aren't probably going down too low anytime soon is the stock market, right? So let's pull up the S&P 500 here for a second, the futures, because this is one where, you know, look at that, man. You know, it was up like, what, 20-some percent. You see the steepness of that uptrend. You see how far away it is from that 200-day moving average. We had um, a conversation with Carter yesterday, Guy, and I think it was Peter Bookbar who sent this, and and, and I think it was uh, Doug Cass who highlighted it on his note on Real Money, that the highs in July when the S&P um, was up there, it was basically 11% above its 200-day moving average. That's where we were yesterday. And subsequently, we had a S&P 500 that declined about 11 or 12% over the next couple of months or so. So, you know, for those of those folks who think that the S&P is the only game in town when we still have rates high, we still have an alternative, right, to equity returns. We still have expectations for an economy that's continuing to chug along at some point the S&P 500 trading at 24 times trailing and 21 times forward or whatever does not make a lot of sense in this kind of new rate regime, Guy. No, listen, absolutely. And again, that's based on earnings expectations. And, you know, I still think it's going to be difficult to match the expectations that the market has. We'll see. But, you know, for some reason, I'm predisposed to dislike this guy. I think maybe because he covers the Fed and he seems to be a bit of a sycophant for them. But let's throw up this quote from Nick. Timoros, who took over the helm from that, what was that other short guy's name um, that I forget? He used to come on all the time. They're both probably really short because, you know, if you can't be an athlete, cover the Fed. Anyway, yeah. what CPI means for the Fed, rate, Mart rates got ruled out even more so now. I think we all agree with that. But, you know, it's some of the things underneath that are problematic for people and insurance costs through the roof. Obviously, rent or just however you want to view housing or, you know, having a roof over your head through the roof, medical costs through the all the things that are problematic have been problematic for quite some time. So people will point to gasoline coming down over the last year. It has. The problem, of course, is some of the main other culprits have not and actually starting to reaccelerate higher. Yeah, no. Um, it's Hells and wrath, right? Hells and wrath. Hells That's and wrath. the one. Yeah. yeah, I think they're those guys are probably you know buttoned up against. Um, you yeah, know, well, I don't, I don't like either one of them. So, hey, listen, you know what, guy? There's a chance they were just assigned the Fed, okay? And, yeah, and maybe could be just doing their thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, That's fine. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's all good. I mean, you know, it's all good. I, I just, um, I, I just, I'm just letting people. I, you know, me. I'll put it out there. I, for whatever reason, I don't like either one of them, but back to you. All right. Let's go. Um, let's go to the CME fed tracker here, guy looking out to may, because as the March 
you know, expectations for a cut got pushed out. Here we are um, looking at May. Um, and to your point, this is it's not a slam dunk there. We're hearing some stuff, as you just mentioned from that tweet, that's looking like maybe July. And it's interesting that the stock market in 2023, okay, the, the like the like the more that the cuts um got priced into the market is the higher the stock market went, right? So now the further out the cuts are being pushed. The stock market is down 1% from the all-time highs it was making yesterday. So like the one concern that I have is that at some point there's going to be some sort of something that ignites a flame. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and maybe it's Nvidia's earnings next Wednesday, you know? I don't know if you caught this. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning and we were talking about this on some of our pods. Um, it was about Microsoft Copilot. Okay? Microsoft Copilot is this basically they're using Chat GPT, OpenAI's technology that they've spent $13 billion as Microsoft and getting access to over the last call it, couple years or so. And they're going to integrate this, okay, into all of their Office 365 tools, right? And it's supposed to be this thing that's going to revolutionize workflows and make you more productive. And there was this great Super Bowl ad about this is like kind of humanizing it, right? Like not, not something you should be afraid of. And, you know, the reviews were pretty lukewarm. You know, and like I've been using ChatGPT for the one that I pay $20 a month for, and I'm kind of underwhelmed. I'm never going to use Bing Search, okay? I don't use three, Microsoft 360. I don't use any of their products. So I'm not going to use Copilot, right? And so like the fact of the matter is that review is out there from people who use Microsoft products, and it's not particularly great. The issue that I have is that Microsoft has gained a trillion dollars in market cap after over the last four months as people have gotten really excited about the prospects of this adding considerable revenue and profits to a company because they're able to charge more for this device. So well, my that's, only point that's exactly is that right. If people start pricing in the fact that maybe it's not going to be the thing that they thought it was going to be four months ago, what happens to Microsoft guy? Right. They're assuming that things that people want or the market needs. And, you know, maybe it is at some point. I just think that we're, you know, really far ahead of ourselves in terms of the timeline. And you, know, you asked what could be sort of the match. Pull up a chart of ARM Holdings, ARM. And we talked about this yesterday. You know, we, we talked about the gap higher that we saw yesterday. We talked about the price action. Doug Cass sent us a tweet or an, or an email as well to talk about it. You had this gap open higher. Um, I think if we can do maybe a a longer term chart, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about Um, on huge volume yesterday. You had a gap open higher. Well, guess what happened today? You had a gap open lower. So there's a very good chance you've created this sort of a bit of an island reversal here in this name. So what could go wrong? Well, if this is, in fact, the technical setup that I think it is, and then you have NVIDIA coming up, uh, you have interest rates going higher. What's that term that I use, Dan, all the time? A what? Um, bookmark, footnote. Wh- which is brew. So you oh, haven't used it in a while, too. so you forgot. You haven't used that in a while. Hey, that, is, way, that is, by the way, a which is brew. By, by the way, um, I caught this because I was not an, involved in this conversation, but on our Fridays on the Tape podcast that dropped, you and Danny Moses interviewed a guy named Luke Roman, and he used the expression, Katie, bar the door. Yeah. Did mm-hmm. you get all excited about that? Uh, I, well, because- Absolutely. That's another G Swiss favorite. So no question about it. You know, again, and I'm not, I'm not throwing this out. Just Japanese stock market's done extraordinarily well. I mean, we can talk, but again, dollar yen, which was a concern of ours for a long time, 
when it was north of 150 a few months ago, subsequently saw it go from 151-ish down to 140. We've gotten all the way back north of 150 again. That's something that nobody's talking about. I promise you, if that continues, if the dollar continues to strengthen against the yen, people will start talking about it ad infinitum, number one. So just keep an eye on that. Dollar strength is a problem. That's been a wrecking ball. That continues to move. We're going to talk about gold in a second. You know, I think I understand why gold is selling off today. I don't necessarily agree with the thought process behind it. We'll see how that plays out. But, you know, the technical setups in some of these things are a little alarming, I think, Dan. Yeah, and it's not just the technicals. I guess the the, the other point, and we spend a lot of time talking about sentiment. We talk about uh, expectations, right? And so, you know, I made this point the other day, and I think it's just really important. You know, a lot of people want to dunk um, on... I'll just say me or, or any pundit when they're wrong about, about like something. And, and NVIDIA is a, a, a clear one that a lot of folks remember that I was kind of poo-pooing and, and obviously really wrong last year. Not the technology, not their positioning in the space, not this, just kind of, you know, like the excitement in and around it and what it might mean for this ecosystem and the secular shift or whatever. And, and I clearly got that wrong on a few occasions um, last year, okay? But this year on January 5th, and it was largely about technicals. It was largely about relative underperformance, you know, and we detailed it on Market Call. I did it on CNBC's Fast Money. The stock NVIDIA was at 490. And I said, this stock's going to break out and it's going to break out in a big way. And once, and, and, you know, the NASDAQ, let's pull up the NASDAQ chart for a second here. And the NASDAQ had sold off a little bit. All the Mag 7 were down. Do you remember that the first week mm-hmm. of the year? And I said, when the NASDAQ gets back on its horse and it finds its footing, NVIDIA will actually, look at that, will massively outperform which it has this year. So if you think about NVIDIA, it's up 46%. Not in a million years did I think it was going to go up 46% in a month, okay? But I did think it was going to outperform the NASDAQ probably two to one or three to one or something like that. So if the NASDAQ had rallied 3%, maybe it was going to be up eight or 9% or something like that. So I didn't get it wrong this year. Now, I haven't been a buyer of the stock, but the point I want to make, guy, is that now let's pull up Tesla for a second. Okay, we've been talking about the unusual sentiment. We've talking about the degrading uh, fundamentals. We've been talking about the macro environment, how it's not actually particularly great. We've been talking about some stuff, you know, relative to Elon and stuff like that. But look what's happened over the last year. So, you know, what did your uh, football coach used to say to you about being early? If you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, don't bother. Yeah. And it doesn't really work being too early in the stock market, right? When you're kind of, you know, being a little bit contrarian, but this one, after that huge ramp, you know what I mean? Like that, that we saw last spring, this has been a sell every rally sort of thing. And when the company has actually turned the mics on and given the prior quarters deliveries and results, the stock has gapped down 10% on average over the last four quarters. And this thing is going lower. The fundamentals they suck right now and they're not getting better anytime soon. So now let's flash up NVIDIA. Okay. So coming into this year, the stock grew into the valuation guy and it was cheap, but up 50% from its lows in January, gaining nearly $900 billion in market cap. It's no longer cheap. And now for it to grow into that valuation, it's got to go considerably higher. You know what I mean? And the results have to be considerably better. And that's just not going to happen from here, guy. We mentioned, you know, yesterday we talked about Sun Microsystems and some of the math around that that was required for that stock to continue to perform the way it did. And 
you know, I think NVIDIA, I think the revenue next year expected revenue, I'm going to round up, is about $100 billion, which, you know, a, a considerable growth over the last few years without question. But when you're talking about a company that just was trading $1.8 trillion, I mean, I, I can do that math. It's yep. trading 18 times sales, which is in that world historically rich. By the way, it's been richer than that as well. So in order, if, in order for it to be at a reasonable valuation to sales, that $100 billion number, in my opinion, should be closer to $250 billion. Now, people will say, guy, that's fine. They're going to grow into that. Okay. If that's the case, I understand why people are buying the stock here. But let's say that's not the case, right? And you start to see revenue start to taper off and you don't have nearly the growth rate you've seen. Then all of a sudden, that price to sales, which people are seemingly um, not looking at right now, everybody's going to be laser focused on all right, but this goes back to the fundamentals. And this is just not about NVIDIA. It's just how we look at these things and why we can be early and why I was early um, on this one because it clearly did grow into its valuations. Analysts did not take their estimates up enough, okay, for like the full out year. You know what I mean? They were doing it quarter to quarter. And so I guess my point, Guy, is that what was unique about NVIDIA last year is that they literally had 90% of the market share mm -hmm. of high-end graphics chips that were used to train these models that were going into these servers that were going into the data centers and there was not enough supply of them and they had only supply they also had the chinese competing for the you know like so they were like they they totally screwed up the demand picture in front of what was going to be bands of high-end chips right so then everybody and their mother is trying to compete with this amd's been like, like like they were trying to get in the space so now the competition's in the supply demand you know like like relationship is going to improve a little bit um maybe if you have more reviews like we heard about Copilot this morning, okay, that there's maybe not going to be such great demand. Maybe as these companies go from the training phase of these models to what they call the inference phase, maybe that's less data intensive and there'll mm -hmm. be less need for GP. I mean, the list goes on and on. Like, you know, they're all, they're customers, the hyperscalers, okay? The biggest customers, the concentration here, I think is Microsoft and Meta are like 30% of their revenues, okay? Throw in Alphabet, and, you know, uh, Amazon and you get to like 45% or something like that. So let's just say they don't commercialize these products. They stop buying these things. They're designing their own ones, right? To obviously have cheaper price points. The competition's coming and they're going to compete on price. Okay. So when you think about next week and we'll spend a lot of time on it, it just has the potential to decelerate. And if you disappoint after moves like this, I mean, you tell me what happens, guy. Yeah, listen, I, I wanted to point out the ARM holdings chart because you could very well see similar. And the fact that I thought ARM was interesting was not only the price action, but the amount of volume that the stock traded, uh, which suggests a little euphoria yesterday without question. I mean, I think yesterday it traded close to 15 times normal volume. So let's see how it plays out. You know, I feel the same way NVIDIA and that futures chart. We just looked at the E-mini in, in terms of the Qs, the E-mini in terms of the S&P, there's hauntingly similar charts. So we'll see if this support level that we have drawn holds. Um, it's holding for now. But there was a chart that CQ, not a chart, a tweet that CQ put out there earlier. Again, Marco Kalanovic from JP Morgan, who really has not changed his tune. You know, I think he's been somewhat um, cautious now for quite some time. Yeah, but he put a tweet out sort of talking about the divergences he's seeing between some of the markets. And, you know, that continues to happen. It's interesting how 
euphoric people are on the one side of the coin here in the United States. He didn't mention China. He mentioned Europe. But flip side is that's how negative people are in China. And I think probably have record short positions. So there's so many things out there that are just flashing red right now, Dan. Yeah, you know, the last point I want to make about, like, maybe they can throw up Marco's tweet, uh, or it's actually from 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 Carl Quintanilla. Um, you know, a lot of people have enjoyed dunking on on Marco, who we know, we've known him for a very long time. Um, really smart guy, very thoughtful guy. It's one thing to be a strategist and, and just be wrong and dig in. But, you know, if you read these guys, like, this is the most important point. We made this on, on the tape a week or two ago um, about Mike Wilson, who you and I have a ton of respect for. For, um, and, and have known a, a very long time. If you read their work, if you talk to them and you don't just read a tweet or you don't just read someone else's interpretation of this dogma that you think has gone on or this and that or whatever, like they will help you make your own mind up about the market, about macro inputs, about sectors, about individual stories, about timing. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so this whole notion that you can just dunk on these folks because, you know, they're not like flapping in the wind, like most of the other strategists, like most of the other pundits out there, like to me, that's a freaking joke. Okay. So like do your work, read what these people are saying, even if you don't agree with their target of the S&P or where you think the market's going over the next three months, I guarantee their work will be helpful um, to you. You know, I just, I mean, I, I, I'm seeming a little ranty here, but um, a little little fired up. I think we're on the precipice of something here, guy. Um, yeah. in the market, I, I want to I mean, I I pull up the small caps for a second. Because yep, this is I was just going to say, look at the E. Russell's, the, the futures. We can throw up an IWM chart as well, but we this is yeah. a futures day, so let's take a look. Yeah. I mean, look at this thing. I mean, like, so we highlighted the fact yesterday that it had two consecutive, you know, up, you know, days that were maybe three, three and a half percent. To have the Russell down guy, three percent like this, doubling up the Nasdaq's down one and a half percent or so, like that's really important. And you've talked about this on many occasions over the last 18 months with the Russell. There's few better indicators about like when it comes to failed breakouts other than the Russell 2000, because it seems like the Johnny come lately's they get to this one last. And so when you, when they bust out and then fails, you almost want to be like, you know, watch out below for the S and P and the NASDAQ. Yeah. That's the channel. I mean, or whatever you want to call that. I mean, that's the range we've been in and we've pointed out a number of times. This is obviously the in mini Russell 2000, I mean, we could look at the IWM. It's going to look exactly the same, so there's no reason to do it. Um, but with that said, you know, we're at the upper end of that channel and seemingly failed once again. And I do think that you're probably going to make a push in terms of the IWM down to 185 or so. And the ultimate goal could be down in the 160s or so, which we saw over the last summer and into October. So I think that continues. I'm hard-pressed to believe, this is again just me, you know, if inflation is as sticky as I think, it's going to really hamstring these small and medium-sized businesses that find themselves in either the E-mini 2000 Russell futures or the IWM or whatever else you want to look at. So just yeah. keep an eye on this because I think it definitely tells a story. Yeah, and, and and this is important. So the Russell, you know, like we, you know, we can spend as much time as we want on the S and P and the Nasdaq. We know that you know a handful of names are driving the performance, but I, I think you know keeping an eye on this one and the relative performance to the larger cap indexes is important. Another sector guy that I think you and I are both really focused on, especially with this rate move, 
okay, is the banks. And, mm-hmm. and so we spent a bunch of time with Carter over the last few weeks um, on the regionals. But let's pull up the BKX here because this is one that's kind of interesting to me, okay? We had that breakout. Um, you know, in, in December, um, we've been really going sideways. You know, the banks were kind of the first sector to report that move in December, um, that two day move that you see right above that kind of prior high that was in and around that December, mid December fed meeting. Right. And, and so a lot of people were really focused. They thought that was a really dovish sort of term, but look at that. It just went sideways. Right. Mm-hmm. And the bank earnings weren't particularly great. So if you were excited about banks because yields were coming down and the big money, centers that had these mark-to-market losses, right, and these held-to-maturity books, if that was going to alleviate some of that. Well, with rates going back higher, it should be the opposite. So you see the lines that we've drawn, the uptrend from the October low, that breakout level, which has now been support, and you see where the 200-day moving average is, Guy. Like, this is an important chart to me. I agree. And if you look at the lows made sense, we actually, I remember discussing this back in the fall. And as you know, the May low, I think in the BK or the BKX was about 71 and change. We obviously had a huge rally on the back of the Fed coming in, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, blah, blah, blah. You saw the base go from 71 to 90. And then you saw a revisiting of that 71 level in October and November. We held double bottom, bounced. You saw what the bounce is. If you extend this chart out, you'll see that we traded up to. So resistance has become what past support was if you go back a couple of years. So current resistance was past support. And here we are sort of trading sideways. If yields are going to go higher from here, which I do think is going to continue to happen, these are going to be under pressure. And I think that sort of 84 level or so, which is the moving average, comes into play. So you've had a heroic run on the back of, again, rates moving in your direction, lack of negative news. But here we are going sideways, and I think we're sort of setting up for a move lower. Yeah, and I just want to highlight JP Morgan for a second here. Um, you know, so obviously best of breed, you know, people, you know, that, that's where they're going to crowd into, right? And we know that Bank America was one of the ones, really, you know, heavily exposed to, you know, buying treasuries, you know, a couple years ago or a few years ago during the pandemic when they were yielding nothing, right? So that was a big problem um, on their balance sheet. Let's pull up JP Morgan um, for a second here because um, why is this important? It'll be the last battle fought. In, in my opinion, among the banks, you could have drawn an uptrend from the October lows. We're breaking that a little bit. You see that we're sitting on support there. Um, or, yeah, oh, look at that. These guys are good. Um, you see that guy? You see how mm-hmm. quick that 160 level was the breakout level just a couple months ago. Um, you see that 200-day moving average all the way down there at 150. Guy, when's the last time you've seen JP Morgan, okay, like, you know, 20 bucks or plus above its its 200-day moving average on a percentage basis. You can do that math. It's over 10%. We know the S&P is over 10%. It just seems like things have gotten a little out of whack. So again, sometimes it makes sense to watch the best of breed. We can all get hunkered down watching the worst ones, the ones that will be most heavily affected by a move in rates or something like that. But let's see how the best one acts too. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I'm comparing them only because, you know, they live in the same universe. JP Morgan, we, I think, just recently traded at an all-time high or within you know a dollar or so of it. The Bank of America, the all-time high was in the fall of 2006, if I'm not mistaken, if you want to go back and look. And obviously that stock is nowhere near that. So as well as JP Morgan's done, quite frankly, because they are the best bank out there and Jamie Dimon tells a great story. You think about some of the damage on some of these other banks that we seemingly gloss over every once in a while. And 
you know, in a lot of ways, and this is going to sound ridiculous. I mean, a lot of these banks really have yet to recover from 0809. I mean, they've been treading water for quite some time now, but, you know, haven't had a significant recovery from those periods of time as in the opposition of like a JP Morgan. So just something to keep in mind as we move further into the year. Yeah, no doubt about it. And and again, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they've just, you know, the regulation and, and what these banks look like. And, and um, you know, it's just like they're kind of utilities in a way. They don't have the sort of leverage to like a rip roaring economy that they might have done because mm-hmm. the risk that they were willing to take in, in periods prior. Um, let's talk about crude oil here. We spent, you know, a little time talking about inflation, talking about gas at the pump and the like. And last week on Tuesday, you and I were talking about crude oil. We're looking at the futures here. Um, Jacob's got a clip for us just to kind of recap what we're thinking. I think both of us thought the technical setup looked pretty decent playing for a move higher back towards the prior highs in the upper 70s, maybe as high as 80 or so. So let's look at that and then let's kind of update our view on crude oil a little bit. If you're inclined to take a shot on crude, that uptrend right from the December lows is really important. And why do we kind of keep thinking about it with the idea of using a stop down there if you're inclined to play for, you know, um, a move back towards that moving average back towards that recent high that got up there towards 80. You know, to me, I think if you want to take a crack here, you know, like, you, you, on the long side, what's your stop? Maybe 72 and a half or something like that. You don't really want it to break below that uptrend because if it breaks below that uptrend, you're going back to 70, which is that recent low in January. And then the December low is somewhere like 68 bucks. That's right. I mean, it's playing out. So it's pulpit chart today because, you know, we, we outlined the levels for you. Dan did a good job there, obviously. And you see where we're trading now. So, you know, that what we traded down to, if you think about that downtrend that was broken. So we broke this downtrend line. Uh, we traded through it, traded up, traded back down and tested it, which was supposed, which was in correlation to an uptrend line that we drew. And then we bounced off it. We're at the moving average. There are a lot of strange things happening here. So a lot of people say, you know what, guy, we traded here before. We're going to fail. That's fine. Uh, I get it. And if you got in on a long position on the futures, maybe this is the time to pull the ripcord. I think there's more going on here. And, you know, I think with all the geopolitical stuff that seemingly people want to forget about for whatever reason, that has not gone away. I think crude oil is still in play. And you heard from some of the OPEC ministers talking about supply demand imbalances. I mean, the fundamentals still suggest, in my opinion, that crude is going to go higher, especially if the headwind of a China that's been deteriorating is somewhat uh, assuaged by the amount of money they're throwing at the system. So we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. And the one thing I would say about this is that, again, you know, I don't think either one of us were kind of pounding the table. We just thought the technical setup looked pretty good. We thought investor sentiment was like kind of complacent given all of what you just said there, guys. So we had the move. We're above that 200 day moving average. I have it as about um, 7740 guy. And I'm looking at it at mm-hmm. 7818 right now. We see that prior high from late January, which was about I don't know, just a little bit of high, you know, 79-ish or 79 and a quarter or so. So what I want to do here is if you were long at 73 and a half and use a 72 and a half stop to the downside, I think it makes sense to move that stop up, right? And maybe it makes sense to put it in and around that 200-day moving average that should be support. So you don't want to put the stop just above the 200-day moving average. You want to put it a little below that uh, 200-day moving average if that is what you see as a good support level. Um, And then you try to keep moving that stop 
higher, locking in the gains that you have. Does that make sense to trade crude this way, guy? And if I you keep that's, raising that's, that stop, then you get the breakout possible. That's you know exactly I mean? right. You know, at a certain point, if you know, with trailing stops, if you keep in this case, when you're long, you're raising your existing stop. At a certain point, you're going to get stopped out, which is fine. I think we all understand it's like being at a craps table. And you have, you know, you throw a bunch of different winning numbers and the numbers keep coming up at a certain point, you know, you're going to have seven out, but the leverage created up until that point is basically what you're looking for. The same way here, you know, if you keep raising your stop, if the price keeps going higher, you keep raising that stop. It's just a matter of time before you get a day or two that's going to get a back and fill and you're going to get stopped out. But that's okay because that's how you play the leverage game. So quite frankly, you can add to a long position here and raise that stop and continue to play it that way if you want. There are a number of different things to do without question, but we just wanted to sort of highlight the, you know, the technicals and how you basically trade futures on the back of it. Yeah, let's look at the dollar. You just mentioned it earlier in the program here, Guy. What a heck of a move just today. And I know a lot of people are saying, if you're looking at the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index, and you're saying, well, up 70 cents is not that heck of a In a currency you know, cross like this, that is a big move. You see the move off of those late December mm-hmm. lows um, below 101. And when we kind of tie this back together, corporate earnings and how it tracks with rates and, and, and the like here. Um, this is a tough setup, in, in, you know, in, in my opinion for stocks. Again, I am surprised with yields is up as much as they are today. Okay. I'm seeing up, you know, 10, 11 basis points in the uh, 10 year and the dollar up like this, that the S and P, you know, it's down now by like 1.3% or something like that. It has the potential, in my opinion, to really start to snowball a little bit. And you see that channel that you've drawn there, Guy. I mean, if we kind of continue to get to the upper bounds of that, you know, there might be some resistance there. But I I just don't see the stock market. I don't see the S&P hanging in around 49.50 if the dollar and rates continue to go higher. Yeah, well, the tailwind of of a weakening dollar since the fall has obviously changed course considerably. And now we've basically gotten halfway back from... You can go back and look, sort of the October, November highs in the dollar to the recent lows we saw earlier this year or late last year. So 50% retracement, maybe this is a logical place to stop, especially if you look at that channel, it all makes sense. But I'll just say this about a stronger dollar. I mean, historically, a stronger dollar um, does damage to multinationals. It's typically a pretty big headwind for earnings, and I don't think enough people are talking about that. So what was a tailwind for earnings and the backdrop was good for months into this year is now changing on a dime. And again, I don't think market participants, to your point, are taking that into consideration. Right. And so on the other side of the strong dollar guy is weak gold here. And it's one that, you know, we've been tracking, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for months and months here. It's you know, held up relatively well in this dollar move, right? Over the last, call it five or six weeks until today. So help our viewer, help our listener think about this sort of move um, in gold and, and how maybe this is a bit of a knee jerk on, on a CPI day that has actually gone the opposite way that a lot of people might have been expecting. You know, guy, a lot of the previews that you and I were reading into this morning's print was like, you know, we're going to be the first one with a two handle and 18 months, whatever the hell it is, right? Or in a very long time. And it didn't go that way. And if it starts to go the opposite way, where 3 1 becomes 3 2 or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, then that just pushes out these rate cuts further. It could mean that we have higher dollar, higher yields. And does that exactly have to mean lower gold? 
Yeah, that's really interesting, right? So now you have this reemerge. I, I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but you know, okay, a, a resurgence of inflation problems, right? And obviously, you would think that'd be bullish for gold. But what the market says is, well, wait a second. If the Fed sees this, obviously they're not going to cut rates, and they're going to do what they can to combat that. So those rate cuts are being pushed out. Obviously, that's bullish for the dollar, bearish for gold. It's pretty one-dimensional, and I totally understand that. But if you start to dig around a little bit, I mean, you see the buying that continues to go on by central banks. You see what's going on in terms of all these different countries, in terms of the fiat currencies around them. All roads lead to gold. So one day action makes a whole hell of a lot of sense. But it's going to be, I think there's could be a point where yields go higher, dollar goes higher, and actually gold starts to go higher as well. We're obviously not there today. But that's an outcome that I don't think is necessarily unfeasible. Yeah. And I'll just say from a technical standpoint, Guy, um, you know, I think the lower end of that range that gets you to that kind of that mid-December sort of period, you know, like it's uh, 1990 or something like that or so. Or, well, we're 1990 mm -hmm. here. So it's just a little bit lower. We're approaching the 100-day moving average. I see the 200, which is really flatlined. It's also kind of that breakout level too. So, you know, we'll check back on this one because I think, you, you know, if we were to continue to see rates go higher, equities go lower, uh, you, you know, um, and the dollar go higher. This thing probably has a little more downside. Let's see if it finds support at that green and yellow line. Does that make some sense to you? I mean, no, it makes a lot of sense to me. Obviously, I'm watching it. I understand, again, that today's action makes sense. The action in a lot of things today makes sense without question. The reality is, or what's going to be really fascinating to see is when the decoupling starts. Like, So when things start to not unravel, but when gold starts to rally along with a rallying dollar, or the Russell starts to underperform the broader market again, or you continue to see this underlying strength in the VIX that we outlined yesterday on what was a pretty benign day yesterday. What is that telling you? Uh, all those things are in play. And that probably, Dan, leads us to a question that we got asked. If you want to throw that question up, because I think this is perfect for this day specifically, this is from Peter. I think that's how you pronounce it. I was well, you can read it. I'll read it. I was wondering if either can do a bit of focus on volatility. Selling vol continues to be a massive trade. Calls now priced over puts. You can read the rest of it. We've talked about this for a while. And, you know, the reality is, you know, people used to buy volatility to protect portfolios, to protect underlying positions. When people realized that the market doesn't go down and there was no reason to buy volatility, they said, well, I don't need that drain on my portfolio, on my performance. So I'm not going to stop doing that. So then they stopped. And then I think people came to the realization, well, wait a second, if the market doesn't go lower, I can sell volatility and add a synthetic dividend for myself. And I think in the world of passive investing, that's what that's created, a dampening of volatility. I don't think it's particularly healthy. And I do think the reasons why you see those huge spikes in volatility once, twice, three times a year is on the back of that. And maybe we're setting up for another type of that situation, Dan. Yeah. And, you know, it's a great question, Peter. And, and you know, last week, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, um, we were talking about NVIDIA, which we do most days, but we highlighted the fact that you uh, just pointed out is that in some of these tech stocks and specifically in the semi space, and we were looking at NVIDIA, we were looking at the one month out, $100 out of the money call, one month out, $100 out of the money put. The cost of the call was 50% more 
than the cost of the put. And just I, and one of the reasons why I wanted to use the wings, as they call them, in the options so far, it's just showing you how much speculation there is on the call side when usually people are willing to pay up for way downside. You know what I mean? They're paying high vol prices in terms of puts just to have the peace of mind, you know? So things kind of got out of whack, if you will. Um, so, you know, I mean, it is what it is. Um, if you long, if you're long stocks and you don't want to sell them and they've had big gains for whatever the reason is, at least if you're getting a little nervous about the market, if you're getting nervous about the macro, if you're getting nervous about individual stocks and events or valuations or whatever, then you can always sell upside calls against it. Do something. Like we talk about that all the time. If you're starting to kind of get a little nervous about your positioning, whether it's the lack of diversification or if you were long a stock like NVIDIA heading into this year, okay, and it was under $500. And then all of a sudden, it trades 725. It's become a much bigger part of your portfolio, especially if some of the other stocks that you own have gone down in price, right? So at some point, you have to start thinking about diversification and risk management. And one way to do that in an easy fashion is to sell some premium, sell some calls against it. All you've done is basically copped your, capped your upside at that short call price and the time in which the expiration is. But oftentimes, you know, most out of the money calls and puts expire worthless. And that's why selling vol in most environments is a good strategy, definitely against long stocks that we don't generally, and you'll never hear a guy and I generally talk about selling naked calls or puts. It's just not something that we think is that appropriate for most retail investors. Agreed. That's something, you know, percentages suggest it works close to 80% of the time. That's what the math suggests. What they don't tell you though, is that 20% of the time it doesn't work. All those gains you've gotten on the 80%, you've given up and then some. So it's a dangerous thing to do and we don't advocate it. But that's it for today, Dan. Again, coming off a great Ranger win, a Nick loss, which I think will be a galvanizing moment. Little snow out there, but the skies are clearing. So I'm heading into uh, New York City. We'll be back tomorrow with the great EY from SoFi. Want to thank the folks for joining us, and we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, everyone.